are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Vibrant, adventurous, colorful. Diana Wallace is a composer of classical music hailing from Junction City, Kansas. Her music expresses her inner thoughts and feelings and is influenced by interactions with friends and strangers, playing chamber music and jamming, which allows her music to take shape in different sound worlds and styles. Her music has been heard in the U.S. and Europe, and she's been fortunate enough to work with cellist Kivi Khan Lippmann from the International Contemporary Ensemble and participate in a reading session with vocal ensemble Roomful of Teeth. Diana has bachelor's degrees in music composition and cello performance from Wichita State University and is currently studying composition at Michigan State University. Uh, first of all, welcome to Adjective New Music, uh, one of our newest members in the Co- Composer Collective. Really happy to have you. Um, we're going to be looking at several of your solo works today, um, piece for solo cello, a piece for solo piano and a piece for solo clarinet. And, um, I wanted to actually ask you about that. I mean, I think that writing solo music is one of the hardest things to do actually. Um, which is why I usually chicken out and bring electronics into the mix, um, to accompany it. So how do you approach, uh, writing solo music? Um, what things are you more conscious of in solo works as opposed to like chamber and large ensemble works? Yeah, that's a really excellent question. Um, I know for my, and it's all situational. So I know from my solo cello piece, I wrote that in one day and that was actually when I was supposed to be practicing for a jury (laughs) um and so when I'm like when I'm writing on my own instrument when I'm playing on my own instrument I think is when I get the most inspiration and it's easy to just write and for a solo instrument that way because I am a soloist in that moment in time Mm -hmm. um so that's just the sort of story behind my solo cello piece my solo clarinet piece was actually for a class that I took at Michigan State University it was a composition seminar and it's called symbiosis. And it's basically seeing how you can collaborate with a performer to create this work together. And so we decided to do solo clarinet. And just based off of the, my performer strengths, Chris Kimensi, who's a, an incredible clarinetist and really enjoys improv. And we decided to run with that in that direction. Um, so it was a really, really meaningful project. And it was something that I could do and we could do together. Um, so it was easier on that front. Mm-hmm. And then my solo piano piece. I was in the middle of writing a solo tenor saxophone piece, which wasn't working out (laughs) Uh, for a multitude of reasons. And I decided to approach this in this way to sort of just write kind of whatever I wanted and to liberate myself from this writer's block that I was having. And solo piano, I feel like, is a little bit different than any other solo instrument because you have 10 fingers that can do uh, anything you want within a physical means. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of, kind of solo piano is almost kind of a duet, uh, between the hands in a way. Um, well let's, let's start out with your piece, uh, shades for solo cello. And this is featured on score follower. It has a really nice video. So I suggest listeners go, go check that out. Um, so you said that, uh, you, you wrote this when you were supposed to be, uh, practicing for a jury. I feel like, I've I've written I, I'm a percussion well I was a percussionist I I have written so many things based on the fact that I didn't want to practice <laughs> so like um, 
kind of uh, what was other than just procrastination? What was the motivation behind like writing this particular work? That's such a great question, and I I feel like I don't know how to answer it, even though I do. There is a sort of like repeating motive um, with microtones that you hear all throughout the piece. And I think throughout this entire session, that was sort of the thing that helped it come together from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. It's just this repeating motive, figuring out where it fit in, figuring out how everything sounded together. And uh, that was the main motivator. Um, just that D going slightly up to E flat, going slightly down to the, the C sharp. Um, and um, yeah, and I was I started there and then it grew from that. I think it's interesting that you note you actually notated breath for the performer in this. You know, I've never seen that done done for a string player. Why was that an important characteristic for you with this piece? I think as string players, we sort of disregard breath really as an emotional vehicle for what's going on. I feel like no matter what sort of performer you're watching, whether it's a wind player, a percussionist, a pianist, a string player, at any moment in time, they're going to be breathing in some sort of way. Um, and you can sometimes see that physically. Sometimes you can hear it. Sometimes you can hear people singing when they're performing. And I find that to be really, really special. My cello professor is a very uh, breathy guy. And that's something that I always found interesting doing lessons with him. Whenever we're talking about being expressive and we're talking about motion going forward or even uh, coming down in emotion, he would always use the breath as a vehicle for that sort of expression. And I find that very interesting. And I wanted to incorporate it that way um, as a part of the phrase. Um, it's up to the f- performer if it propels a phrase forward, if it um, comes back in emotion just a little bit. And I also have a note in there, like if you're already a breathy performer, I had a performance once where someone didn't even follow any of the breath directions that I gave. <laughs> However, because he was an expressive performer, he was already breathing in his own special way anyway. And I think it brought another dimension to the performance, which is very special. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking back to, you know, a long time ago when I used to play marimba a lot. And, you know, especially if you're doing something kind of slow and like chorale-esque on marimba i i remember like taking those big inhales like as you start a phrase and kind of yeah that's that's interesting i hadn't really thought about that before uh for like non-wind players but it's definitely something that's still an, an aspect of performance that it really helps the performance along as opposed to ignoring it like you know It'd be it'd be interesting to do kind of a uh, a comparison of like play a phrase and really use really think about your breath and think about your breathing and then play a phrase and almost hold your breath and see how see how different or like tense um, the other I, I assume the other one would be. Um, you were talking about that that D um, motive that uh, comes into the piece, and it seems like especially at the end there's some kind of like harmonic or at least like pitch centric duality of the piece on the one hand you have the b or sorry you have the d being microtonally ornamented and then towards the end of a piece an a flat uh chord i mean arpeggio really but it's a stacking of thirds you end up kind of with uh a flat lydian and then an a natural on the very top um 
so what is the drama that's playing out between like that D uh, that D motive and then juxtaposed with that kind of a flat arpeggio that's, that's kind of slowly revealed from the top down. I never really thought about it that way. <laughs> now that you mention it, um, I would say that it's really sort of um, a character shift. I, mm-hmm. Despite the emotion, the sort of rising arpeggio, um, whatever reservations that might have, I think it's still sort of a, a coming down from the buildup from the very beginning to that really expressive mark, the double stops in the high register. And I think it's sort of working itself down from that climactic point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that D motive is just there to sort of, again, just ground it in whatever was happening in the beginning. So you get this kind of like calming down of emotions mixed with this sort of like mysterioso kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, you know, the, the tritone that we feel between the, the, the D motive and the A flat motive, it kind of like, it almost leaves the piece with a certain ambiguity at the end you know because you have these like two two ideas that are like harmonically like diametrically opposed and you kind of end you you do end off on the uh on on like the new one you know on the a flat one so i i just i wanted to know like is ambiguity like an important aspect of your music not necessarily i remember when i brought this piece into my professor i was studying with at the time uh, Dr. Mays at Wichita State University and I brought the you know this six and a half minutes of music and I was just like you know I think I'm going to add another part to the end and help like round out that sort of like aggressive emotion and he just told me he's like you know I think this piece is finished and then I was just like yeah okay it's done <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think I, I think that I had plans to sort of expand it further um but that resting place at the very end i think it's it's very strong i don't think it signals ambiguity in any way Mm -hmm. unless you hear it that way you know yeah that's interesting i i love that like you know I think as composers, we always go, oh, I could do more. I could keep working. I could, I could, you know, develop this. I could do that. And then it, 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 it's really nice when someone comes along and says, no, nah, I think it's done. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, what am I going to do without him, though? <laughs> <laughs> Telling me when something's over. <laughs> you, I, I think as you, I, I think as you get older, like it, it is really nice. Like when, when someone just kind of gives you the, uh, the nod, like, Hey, I, I think it's done. But on the other hand, you know, I feel like at a certain time, and this is going to sound a little bit pessimistic, but at, at a certain point, like you get to this place where you're just like, Okay, I've done all I can do on this. I, I yes, I could work on it the rest of my life, but I need to move on, you know. And it's it's kind of like uh, I know that uh, Andrew um, Martin Smith, you know, uh, also of adjective. He he loves the um, the quote that's attributed to many different people, but like uh, pieces aren't finished; they're abandoned. You know, <laughs> um, basically, you get to a point where you're like, all right, enough already. But you know. I will say that 
uh, I was I was just working on a, a piece over um, over the winter break, and you can still like uh, rely on your friends. You know, I had uh, Andrew, Andrew and Jamie um, were the three of us are are pretty close, and uh, I still like go to them. Hey, can I have a peer lesson? Can you just like listen and you know? Can we just talk things through? It's not like. I'm looking to them for as like a teacher. I just like having someone else to bounce those ideas off of and have that conversation is really, is really, really valuable. So like when you, when, you know, when you get out of school and you no longer have that teacher there, like uh, find, find the, find the other composer or the other performer friends that you're, you're comfortable with and just like have, have those peer lessons. I love them. Um, and we, we do them for each other quite often. So anyway, you know, as a cellist yourself, um, you said that like this this piece was was very easy to write because you know you you know your way around the instrument really well. Um, how does your thinking shift when you're writing something that you can perform? For myself, with percussion, at least when I still played, it was simultaneously good and bad to write for my own instrument. It was good that I knew how to get around the instrument very well, but bad in the sense that I felt like I had blinders on, you know, that really focused me in on what I could physically do as opposed to pushing me to write something that people better than me uh, could do. Did you have any of that kind of experience? No. <laughs> <laughs> good. <laughs> um, and I, and I'll, I'll tell you why, because I write in a way that I'm just like, I'm not going to play this. I'm not a fan of playing my own music. Okay. Um, just mostly because like hearing my music perform makes me nervous and mm -hmm. it would make me 10,000 more time, 10,000 times more nervous, more nerve wracking if I was performing my own composition. Yeah. And so I write in these, in this sort of like, in these sort of like chunks. So if I can do it slowly and if I can go through the motion slowly, I know that somebody who is way better than me or is, is wanting to be a performer you know, in the long term, um, it's going to be able to do it. No problem. It's sort yeah. of how I think about it. What does the title shades mean? I got nothing for you. <laughs> I feel like titling, titling pieces is so difficult for a multitude of reasons. Um, I originally picked shades actually, um, because the first half sort of centers around, um, D and it's, all these different characters around these with different shades mm -hmm. of, if you will, shades of D is yeah. what I was thinking. Cool. So who are we going to hear on this recording? Um, we are going to hear the very wonderful Kivi Khan Littman. He um, is faculty at Youngstown State University, and I actually met him at the Cortona sessions. Um, so Awesome. So here we are. This is going to be Shades.
well, let's talk about your piano piece five. Um, so this piece is beautiful. End of statement. I mean, you kind of mentioned earlier that this, that this piece kind of broke you out of writer's block. It kind of broke you out of a funk. Can you talk about when, like what was going on and, and how this piece kind of got you out of that block? It's not like a heavy story, but it does make me sort of emotional um, in a way. So I started this in the second semester of my master's degree. Um, after I sort of hit an impasse with my professor um, and what we were working on, the solo tenor piece. Mm-hmm. And it was a very emotional piece for me um, because it's sort of about how I've sort of struggled at MSU because I had been accustomed to writing for my friends when I was at Wichita State. You get four years, you get to know a group of people, and then they end up becoming your go-to performers. Um, and they're excited about it. And coming to a new school, not really knowing anybody, people who are ready and willing and really want to collaborate, but I don't know them on a personal level, so I feel a little bit hesitant about that. Um, so that's something I was struggling with. I was struggling to find my groove in writing for people that I knew sort of, and we're excited about collaborating together, but not in a way that I felt comfortable enough to do it. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, you know, I need to do something that is completely ob- objective um, in the sense that we can just work on technique, that I don't have to get criticized about my emotions or anything that's going into my music. So I decided to write a solo piano piece, Theme and Variations, right? It's like, you have a theme, how are we going to vary it? And I feel like I can get very good advice from my professor about how to do that. And something that wouldn't make me feel hurt or lost at the end of a lesson like I was feeling previously. And so I called up my one of my friends from Wichita State, <laughs> leaning on my friends again. And I was just like, hey, I'm going to write this solo piano piece. Would you be interested in performing it? And uh, he very kindly agreed. Um, and so this piece was born and I'm, I'm very excited. Um, well, it already had its premiere, so I was very excited for that. And I'm very excited to see where it goes from here. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting that, you know, this piece kind of takes us on uh, a journey of different ideas and techniques. But I imagine it's also taking us on a journey about what inspires you. Is that true? Because there are a lot of different... You know, you take us like through uh, some very disparate places. Um, so, are all of the are all of those things kind of like musically within you? Are you interested in like all of those all of those ideas that kind of sums you up as a composer? I mean, to some extent. <laughs> I think so, in a way. When I was writing this, I started uh, with words that I wanted to describe the variations. So I don't think you got a chance to see the score, Mm-mm. but in my notes, I was like, oh, I want the first one to be about counterpoint. I want the second one to be about love. I want the third one to be about uh, space and emptiness. I want the fourth one to be um, gay as in happy. And I wanted the fifth one, fifth variation to be deep, dark, romantic angst. And then I sort of worked from there. And um, as I was going along, I was thinking about composers that I was inspired by. Um, things that sort of describe these characters that I had picked out. Um, And it was 
difficult, I think, mostly from like, can the pianist play this? And mm-hmm. not in the sense of like musical material. Who are, who are the composers that you kind of picked out? Um, I know the fourth variation, which has that running ostinato. I was inspired by Chopin. Uh-huh. Uh huh. The deep dark romantic angst. I was inspired by my favorite Russian composers, Prokofiev. Um, Scriabin is sort of mixed in between the fourth and fifth variations. Um, the third one, I was just kind of doing my own thing. The space and emptiness. I was just like, yeah. Um, but the second one sort of about love I was really inspired by uh W.C. Nervell sort of the impressionist composers mm-hmm. um so yeah yeah it, I mean it's interesting that you know you you bring up these names because I had uh I had a completely different um idea in in my mind uh which is I mean I, you know I think that's I, I think that's great you know that's what music is um, I mean, I really love the sparse and kind of pensive uh, moments of this work, especially the, the I think the first, um, you know, there are, there are moments in this that kind of remind me of the very quiet moments of say like Aaron Copeland's piano variations or, or something like that. Just, um, I think the way you treat the piano is yes, there there are those like big bombastic things, but also like you get down to very small places, and it's really it's really beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Can you talk about? So I think it's the second uh, variation, or maybe maybe the third variation where you where you talk about there is it's the one with a lot of silence, and you're playing inside the piano. Is that am I do I have the number right? Um, yeah, it'll be the third. Yeah. Uh, a lot of like inside the piano, very gestural. It seems like it's about suspension. You know, these chords and resonances just kind of hang there and slowly evaporate. Was that the compositional idea for that section? Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, in my notes um, and in the score, it says empty, emptiness, and then da 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 da. The longest minute ever. I wanted it to feel so long, <laughs> you know, by having all the space. And usually when performers are performing, they take into account of like the hall and the resonance of the hall. And I was just like, you know, I want you to wait until the sound completely dissipates until you move on to the next thing that you're going to play. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of like suspension. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a really excellent word to describe that. Awesome. So, uh, who are, who are we going to hear on this recording? Who's who's the friend that agreed to play it? Uh, it's my really excellent, wonderful friend Patrick Orr. Um, he is finishing up his degree at Wichita State and is going to be headed to a master's program soon. Not sure where, but awesome. So, this is five for solo piano. Thank you. 
Okay, and we're going to talk about your next piece, which um, if you try to look it up, um, <laughs> you would have a tough time because it's the it's the the mathematical symbol for approximately, um, which I love. You know, like uh, any any I, I have a friend who's taken to titling his pieces using emojis at this point and um i think it's awesome it just makes it a little bit hard to search um but <laughs> so anyway this uh this piece is for solo clarinet you kind of started talking about it uh you wrote it during a um uh, during a course on what was it about Sim- symbiosis symbiosis okay so can you talk about like how how that uh, that course, like what you were learning in that course, and how that affected how you how you worked on this piece and how you wrote this piece. Yeah. So the idea of symbiosis is this: um, how does collaboration affect a final product, a final product, final project? Um, we started so, sort of with um, Brahms and who he wrote his violin concerto for, which is sort of strange because I feel like you view these romantic composers in this sort of vacuum, right? They're just writing music just because they can. And it's really interesting when you hear that they collaborated with somebody. Um, Brahms collaborated with a violinist uh, named Joaquim, Mm -hmm. I believe, yeah. And to think about, you know, we read some of the letters that they sent back and forth to each other, edits, potential edits that could be made, what's gonna work best here, what's gonna work best there. And you get this sort of dichotomy of composer perspective and performer perspective. Um, And that's something I think about already, actually, but not in a way of collaboration. I think about it and it's like, okay, how is their interpretation going to affect, you know, potential edit of this piece? Or how is there, how can I leave room for their interpretation? Um, And then this instance, I was working with Chris and he writes a lot of adventurous music and I wouldn't quantify him as like a classical classical clarinetist per se he's just a dude who makes noise on the clarinet and it sounds great (laughs) and so I I took that you know uh when I was writing for him I had these two verbal prompts one of them was about getting ready for a race and the anticipating the countdown and then another verbal prompt that I had was um a scene in like a forest and just feeling the sun on your skin so two very different um different ends on the spectrum and the product that he produced from the more serene scene um was really really beautiful and so we took that and ran with that um which you sort of see weaved in uh, approximately math symbol <laughs> <laughs> um just very calm um all of the trills and the overblowing to the overtones i think that in their essence they're really beautiful gestures, really soft gestures, that if you just expand how you think about them, and they turn into something different. And I could only learn that working with Chris, because that's just the kind of music that he likes. And that's what he likes to play. Yeah, I mean, so you really started this out with just a verbal prompt. And then it was what improvisation like kind of you gave him the prompt he gave you a recording or or played it for you live and then you just kind of ran together so 
this seems like a really, uh, I mean, yes, obviously collaborative piece, but collaborative in, in the like most truest sense of the word. Yeah. And it took us a lot of steps to get there. So the very first thing that I wrote for Chris was a graphic score for this class. And it was supposed to be however long. And then I wrote him an etude, um, which was basically exploring overtones, Mm -hmm. which I had known nothing about because I'm not a clarinetist. I'm not a wind player. I know how the clarinet works, but not as well as he does. Um, And so there were a lot of small steps that we took to get there um, that led me to the verbal prompt that led to this work being created. How would you... um... How would you compare this experience of, you know, working in in this way, like kind of just back and forth, back and forth, here's an idea, here's a product, here's an idea based off of that product versus like, you know, that uh, the, that typical idea of how a composer works, like in their in their dark room, writing their brooding music, you know, um, like how. Do you do you think this experience will affect the way you want to work in the future, or was it just kind of a one-off? I think it it makes me more open to communicating with performers, because typically I have just been like, let's write it down and let's see. But as I explore um, using more extended techniques, using more unconventional techniques, I am more prone to reach out to the performer now just to make sure that it's going to work. And I don't have to start from scratch, basically, um, from like some ideas. Like the same thing happened in five, um, the very middle section. I had to ask, you know, the pianist. I I, I think I sent every variation to him, and I was like, "Can you play this?" <laughs> and I I worked around that, and you know, like I had to figure out what was going to be the best since he's tapping on stuff in the piano. Like, what's going to work for his hands? Um, and the same thing with Chris is it's like, okay, yeah. Um, what kind of uh, uh, overtone can we get from this trill if we overblow it? And like, what can we do here? How would you interpret this graphic notation? Does the graphic notation make sense? Um, and so I think like, as I get more unconventional, I am more prone to reach out to performers. And I think this collaboration really helped me see that, that it's okay to do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, for for me, that type of that type of working relationship and that's that's like the gold standard i mean i if i have that opportunity i would want to do that at every single turn because it's kind of like it's almost like being in a band or something you know it's like oh i'm gonna bring an idea to everyone okay let's riff on it for a while and see what we can make out of it okay you bring your ideas i'll put my ideas in and then at the end of the session like hey we've got a song you know that's awesome and I mean, I, when I was way back in high school, I was in a band and I feel like as a composer, I'm constantly chasing that, that feeling, but of course everyone's super busy and you know, <laughs> like you're always, it seems, unless you're like in, in school, it seems like, uh, you're, you're always writing for people at a distance. So it's really hard to coordinate that, but I just feel like that's, that's like one of the best experiences to, to just work so closely with someone. I don't know. Um, I mean, the piece starts off with kind of like bends and glisses. I mean, I can see why the title fits, 
you know, because it's like approximately, yeah. I mean, we're we're kind of we're we're in between. Um, are those are those passages still? You said uh, you, you worked on some graphic notation. Are those still graphic, or did you like did they start out graphic and then you like solidified them with notation? The whole score is graphic. The whole score is graphic. So the the note heads themselves are still standard. I have some specific specific rhythms, which is usually like. Um, like a, if you hear like a run or anything, mm-hmm. that's all standard. But anything that you hear with the trills, the overblowing, um, any of the bends and turns that you hear, um, all of the dynamics, um, they're all graphic. So I don't have, I have one dynamic direction, and that's for a specific uh, multiphonic. But yeah. that's kind of it. That's awesome. Uh- the I mean wide tremolos on the on the clarinet are so gorgeous and there's so much in between the notes um that that like you know obviously yeah if you play it on piano you oh these two notes but on clarinet there's so much sound in between those notes it's so gorgeous I mean it sounds like um did, did you it sounds like you you really worked closely to find the ones that are idiomatic because some of those like he's playing really really fast and it's like you can't do that with every single tremolo so yeah i uh the the recording i sent you i think is a ford ford for um, query yeah ford for curian yeah, yeah yeah okay so i have his recording is much different than chris kaminsky's and i was deciding like which one i should send you because i was just they're both different even though it's the same piece and it's so interesting to see how it turned out. So while Chris sort of takes his time with these sort of gestures and it's very elongated and it's very beautiful, I think Ford takes the more explosive and exciting approach, which I think is really magical. I think it's really lovely that this piece can go a multitude of ways based on what the performer likes and what they're more inclined um, to do. How are you dealing um, with with pitch in this piece? Is it intuitive? Are you using certain collections or sets? Like how are you, how are you getting around the pitch space? I'm not sure. I could tell you. That I was am. a heavy pause. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to think back um, when I wrote it because I'm in such a different space now. I think I was concerned about how to break up the beginning, the middle, and the end. Uh-huh. So the beginning sort of is in its own vein. Um, it's more exciting, more sparse, kind of like what's going on. And the middle is a sort of like slow progression to this one climax. Mm-hmm. And then um, it sort of tapers off and then it goes to the end which is has the characteristics of the beginning and the middle. The only thing that I was working with was this one particular multiphonic. Um, and that was the only thing that I had in mind as far as pitch went. So mm-hmm. I was more thinking about register than like pitch itself. If that's helpful. Yeah. You said you're in a very different place now. Like, what are you, what are you doing now? Writing my thesis and it's taking over my entire life. Yeah, they, they will do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's for it's for cello and orchestra, and that's a completely different you know beast. 
orchestrating, which is like my first large scale orchestration project that I've done. Um, and the choices that I have to make are just so stressful because it's not just one person. It's, mm-hmm. you know, 20, 30 people. And it's like, oh, what kind of sound do I want from 20 to 30 people? And with this, it's just like, I can explore the register. I can explore the range. I can take my time and do whatever I want to do, um, which is special. Yeah. I mean, I think you could still do ever do anything you want to do in an orchestra piece. It's just you have to make 30 of those what do I want to do decisions here instead of just one. <laughs> and that is stressful and uh, really can bog you down i'm glad that's over for me um so (laughs) good luck um so we're gonna be so are we gonna hear chris or ford on this recording we're gonna hear chris kaminsky on this recording awesome so this is approximately for clarinet
All right, we've come to the last question that I always ask all the composers and artists who come on the podcast. How did you find music as the thing that you wanted to pursue for your life? This is a loaded question. Um, it's, it's sort of a sad story, and I've realized that I've needed to talk about it more as of late, as I've been doing a lot more projects and applications and things. Um, so when I was a senior in high school and deciding what I wanted to do, I was thinking about maybe going into music education or information technology, you know, as one does when they're um, a student in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad had died suddenly. And so it was just a lot emotionally on me getting ready to graduate high school and having to deal with the death of a parent. And um, I found sort of solace in composition, weirdly enough. Um, and so in that sort of um, moment, of grief um i became a composer i guess depending on who you ask so i've been doing it ever since then wow i'm obviously i'm I'm really sorry to hear about that um but it's i think that especially um especially composers will use music to process grief I mean, I was actually, oh my God, way back for listeners, um, episode like eight, we had Andrew Martin Smith on and we had one of his choral pieces and the choral piece was his way of dealing with, um, I think it was the death of his mother. Um, can't can't quite remember that's like (laughs) that episode was like four or five years ago at this point but um but yeah certainly well before we go could you tell people where they can find more of your music connect with you online if they like what they hear yeah um so you can find all of the recordings of most of my pieces uh on my website at dianawallace.com d-a-i-j-a-n-a wallace com. Um, you can also find some of my recordings on YouTube. Um, as Rob mentioned earlier, I have a video on Score Follower now, which is exciting. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me on Twitter, uh, underscore, underscore, Diana, D-A-I-J-A-N-A, for all of your wonderful trash new music takes. <laughs> we love trash new music takes. <laughs> <laughs> Diana, thank you so much for doing this and welcome to Adjective. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.